This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is Centering Our Lives on Christ. In the first half, Thomas B. Griffith shares his address, The Very Root of Christian Doctrine. Then in the second half, Stephen E. Robinson speaks on Believing Christ, a Practical Approach to the Atonement. Years ago, Elder Boyd K. Packer gave a general conference address titled The Mediator. In that address, Elder Packer said, The atonement of Christ is the very root of Christian doctrine. You may know much about the gospel as it branches out from there, but if you only know the branches, and those branches do not touch that root, if they have been cut free from that truth, there will be no life nor substance nor redemption in them. I will confess to you that I have participated in, indeed I have taught, many lessons that although interesting and motivational, according to Elder Packer's guide, they had no life, nor substance, nor redemption in them because they weren't directly linked to the Atonement of Christ. That's a serious criticism of much of what we do, and I believe it's on the mark. I believe that one way, the best way, and possibly the only way to meet President Hinckley's challenge to do better at getting the gospel down into our hearts and the hearts of those we love and serve is to focus all we do on the atonement of Christ. And so, as a newly called state presidency, we tried to do just that. We laid down a rule that every sacrament meeting talk and every lesson in Sunday school Relief Society and Priesthood Meeting must be related to the Atonement of Christ in a direct and express way. Our goal was to have all of our meetings filled with life, substance, and redemption by having them connected to the very root of Christian doctrine, the Atonement of Christ. We told the bishops that if they wanted a sacrament meeting about the principles of emergency preparedness, important principles to be sure, that meeting would be about emergency preparedness and the atonement of Christ. If you cannot figure out the link between the topic you are to teach and the atonement of Christ, you have either not thought about it enough or you shouldn't be talking about it at church. Your topic may be fine for the city council, your neighborhood organization, or the commercial break during sports center, but in our limited time in church, we must be talking about the Atonement of Christ. This is what they did in the first church discussed in detail in the scriptures, the church in Alma's day. They were given a mission similar to ours, prepare a people for the coming of the risen Lord. Their experiences have special meaning to us as we try to fulfill our latter-day responsibilities. Note how the Book of Mormon describes their teaching. And he commanded them that they should teach nothing save it were the things which he had taught and which had been spoken by the mouth of the holy prophets. Yea, even he commanded them that they should preach nothing save it were repentance and faith on the Lord who had redeemed his people. They taught only from the scriptures and the words of the prophets, and they taught only two principles that were inextricably intertwined. Repentance, that we had the constant need to improve, and faith on the Lord who had redeemed his people. Not faith in general, and not even faith in Christ as friend, good shepherd, prince of peace, or any one of a number of important roles he plays. It was faith in a very particular aspect of Christ's mission. 
faith in his ability to redeem us, to improve us. He did that through his atoning sacrifice. We thought we'd try what Alma's church did. We tried to link every principle taught in our meetings to the atonement in a direct and express way. Now, that isn't hard to do in sacrament meeting because the bishopric can pick the topics. And it isn't hard to do when the study guide lesson is on the atonement or repentance. But what do you do when the study guide lesson is on tithing or visiting teaching or the value of education? That's a little tougher. We made it clear that we expected the teachers to teach the approved curriculum. There is strength that comes from teaching materials approved by priesthood leaders. But it isn't always obvious how the assigned material relates to the atonement. To address that challenge, we had two suggestions. First, we urge teachers to find examples of the principles being taught from the life of Christ. When we are talking about his life and using the words he said, we are remembering him, and a power comes into our teaching that is otherwise not present. Second, we encourage teachers to see how the principle taught was either part of Heavenly Father's effort to draw us closer to him through Christ, the vertical pull of the atonement, or how the principle draws us closer to our fellow humans through Christ, the horizontal pull of the atonement. So how did it work? Pretty well. People got excited about this approach. We didn't think there was any way that we could or even should try to measure its value, but it seemed right, so we pressed forward. Why did it feel right? Why did it taste so good to, using the words of Nephi, talk of Christ, rejoice in Christ, and preach of Christ in all of our meetings? Because when we are speaking of what the Savior has done for us, we are at the core of the meaning of life. We are connected to the very root of Christian doctrine, and we are doing what Christ and his prophets have asked us to do. Joseph Smith said, the fundamental principles of our religion are the testimony of the apostles and prophets concerning Jesus Christ, that he died, was buried, and rose again on the third day and ascended into heaven. And all other things which pertain to our religion are only appendages to it. We are asked in the Temple Recommend interview, do you have a testimony of the atonement of Christ and of his role as Savior and Redeemer? In my experience as a bishop and a stake president, I can happily report that I have never had anyone answer that question other than yes. And yet I have long had a concern that we don't fully appreciate that question. I think it's significant that of the many roles of Christ, we are asked about only two, his role as Savior, his role as Redeemer. There must be something about these roles that is particularly important to the temple, a place where he binds us to himself through covenants. Like all stake presidents, I worried about the members of the stake. I worried about the things one might expect a priesthood leader of single adults to worry about. But I also worried about whether the members of the stake had a testimony of the atonement of Christ and of his role as Savior and Redeemer. I had the sense that most of them loved Christ, no small thing. But I worried that not enough of them knew him as their Savior, one who had saved them, or their Redeemer, one who had bought them. 
While thinking about this one day, I was reading my favorite chapter in the Book of Mormon, 3 Nephi 11, and I noticed some things that I had never seen before. Many have commented that the visit of the risen Lord Jesus Christ to the Book of Mormon people is a foreshadowing of his second coming. As we pay careful attention to what the Book of Mormon tells us about that experience, we can learn valuable lessons as we prepare for Christ's return. These people were the righteous remnant, those who had heeded the warnings of the prophets. They were prepared to meet the Lord. The story of that encounter is dramatic, moving, and has profound implications for each of us. And it came to pass that they cast their eyes up again towards heaven, and behold, they saw a man descending out of heaven, and he was clothed in a white robe, and he came down and stood in the midst of them. And the eyes of the whole multitude were turned upon him, and they durst not open their mouths, even one to another, and wist not what it meant, for they thought it was an angel that had appeared unto them. They were in awe and a little confused. The Savior's first act of communication is that he stretched forth his hand, showing the symbol and evidence of his sacrifice. Then spake unto the people, saying, Behold, I am Jesus Christ, whom the prophets testified shall come into the world. Those who were nearby couldn't help but notice the wound in his hand. He was not timid about that wound. He wanted it to be seen. Next, he said, I am the light and life of the world. He wanted them to understand that he is the creator of this universe and that by him the world is sustained today. Do you remember the next thing he wanted them to know about? His atonement. I have drunk out of that bitter cup which the Father hath given me and have glorified the Father in taking upon me the sins of the world in the which I have suffered the will of the Father in all things from the beginning. That was his message. He is the anointed one of whom the prophets had testified. He is the creator. He suffered for us. Notice the response. And it came to pass that when Jesus had spoken these words, the whole multitude fell to the earth. For they remembered that it had been prophesied among them that Christ should show himself unto them after his ascension into heaven. What follows is, to me, the most sacred part of this experience. Jesus commands them to come forward one by one and do something difficult. Arise and come forth unto me, that ye may thrust your hands into my side, and also that ye may feel the prints of the nails in my hands and in my feet, that ye may know that I am the God of Israel and the God of the whole earth and have been slain for the sins of the world. There's a gruesome quality to this command. In our culture, we hide scars, we don't display them, and we certainly don't ask others to feel them. But Christ wanted these people to have physical contact with these emblems of his suffering. And it came to pass that the multitude went forth and thrust their hands into his side and did feel the prints of the nails in his hands and in his feet. And this they did do, going forth one by one, until they had all gone forth, all 2,500 of them. 
Some have suggested that this sacred experience took several hours. Now, please note carefully what happens next. And when they had all gone forth and had witnessed for themselves, they did cry out with one accord, saying, Hosanna, blessed be the name of the Most High God. And they did fall down at the feet of Jesus and did worship him. Now, notice what just happened. The second time these people fell at Jesus' feet, they did worship him. That didn't happen the first time. The first time, they may have fallen to the ground for any number of reasons. Fear, awe, peer pressure, I don't know. But the second time, the second time, they fell to worship him. Why the different reaction from the first time? The second time, they cried out in unison, Hosanna, which means save us now. Why were these people, the righteous remnant, crying out to Christ for salvation now? Let me suggest a possible answer. Although they had been obedient, perhaps they had not yet come to know him as their savior because they had not yet felt the need to be saved. They had led lives filled with good works. They knew Jesus as God as exemplar, maybe even as friend, but maybe they didn't yet know him as savior. Their prayer isn't, thank you for having saved us in the past and reminding us of that by your presence today. No, the prayer is a current plea. Hosanna, save us now. That suggests to me that they were just then coming to know him as savior. What had done that? What had turned them from good, obedient people to good, obedient people who now knew Jesus Christ as Savior? What had caused them to fall down at his feet to worship him? Physical contact with the emblems of his suffering. That was what our stake needed to come to know Christ as their Savior and Redeemer. Physical contact with the emblems of his suffering. But how to make that happen? Then it occurred to me, we have that experience every Sunday when we partake of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. We eat the broken bread, a token of his slain body. We drink the water, a symbol of his spilt blood. Striking symbols intended to shock us, to evoke in us a deep sense of gratitude. Every Sunday, you and I have physical contact with the emblems of Christ's suffering. Remember the transforming effect that experience had on the people in the Book of Mormon? They were now prepared to be organized anew into a church community, to hear and put into practice the teachings of the Sermon on the Mount, to learn how to serve those who were powerless, the sick, the disabled, the children. This group transformed their society from one that had been divided by race and class and opportunity into a society in which they had all things common among them. They were not rich and poor, bond and free, but they were made all made free and partakers of the heavenly gift because of the love of God, which did dwell in the hearts of the people. And it began with a group of people who came to know Christ as their Savior because of the transforming experience of having physical contact with the emblems of his suffering. And we do that every week. I believe that our meaningful participation in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper 
will elicit the same response in us. We will cry out to Christ in our hearts, save us now. And we will fall down at his feet to worship him. As Elder Jeffrey R. Holland teaches, it is the wounded Christ who is the captain of our soul. He who yet bears the scars of sacrifice, the lesions of love and humility and forgiveness. Those wounds are what he invites young and old, then and now, to step forward and see and feel. Then we remember with Isaiah that it was for each of us that our master was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. All this we could remember when we are invited by a kneeling young priest to remember Christ always. Brothers and sisters, we must come to know in great detail and with insight and feeling the events that make up the atonement of Christ. We find in the restoration of the gospel much help. In the Book of Mormon and the revelations given to the prophet Joseph Smith, we have abundant knowledge about the atonement of Christ that should be our gift to the world. For example, the prophet Alma provides a remarkable insight that helps us better understand why the Savior persevered in Gethsemane and on Calvary. We know from the New Testament account that an important element of his motivation in those excruciating hours was his love for Heavenly Father. From Alma, however, we learn that he was also driven by his desire to help you and me. And he will take upon him death, that he may loose the bands of death which bind his people. And he will take upon him their infirmities, that his bowels may be filled with mercy according to the flesh, that he may know according to the flesh how to succor his people according to their infirmities. In the last revelation Joseph Smith received before he was permitted to organize Christ's church on the earth, in what was the capstone of Joseph Smith's preparation to be an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord gave the only first-person detailed account of the suffering he endured so that we would not need to suffer the full effects of our disobedience. For behold, I, God, have suffered these things for all, that they might not suffer if they would repent, which suffering caused myself, even God the greatest of all, to tremble because of pain and to bleed at every pore and to suffer both body and spirit and would that I might not drink the bitter cup and shrink. There's something curious about this narrative. It ends with a dash. The Savior did not complete his thought. Why? I don't know. But I'm persuaded by the explanation that the Savior might have cut short his description of what he suffered because it was too painful for him some 1,800 years after the event to complete the description. Now, what kind of a God do we worship? An awesome God. A God who wants us to know that his love for us is infinite and eternal. A God who wants us to know that his love for us gave him the strength to suffer for us. Knowing this ought to be enough to move us to submit our lives to him in obedience and gratitude. Some time ago, I overheard a, a spirited discussion between two good people about a work of art that contained a realistic and disturbing portrayal of Christ's suffering. 
One of them objected to the work and said, you know, I don't want to have to think about how much Christ has suffered. I thought that was an odd thing to say because I don't believe that any of us has the license to avoid thinking about what Christ suffered. In fact, as I read the scriptures, that is among the things we are commanded to think about constantly. As he was closing his account in the Book of Mormon, Moroni, anxious to give his readers motivation to come unto Christ, shared with us a personal letter from his father. It must have had great impact on him, and now he hoped that it would have great impact on us. My son, be faithful in Christ. And may not the things which I write grieve thee to weigh thee down unto death, but may Christ lift thee up, and may his sufferings and death and the showing his body unto our fathers and his mercy and long suffering and the hope of his glory and of eternal life rest in your mind forever. Among the things that are to rest in our mind forever are the sufferings and death of Christ. We should not avoid thinking about the price he paid to win our souls. Our hymns remind us of this truth. You'll recognize these lines, which, for your sake, I will only read and not sing. I think of his hands, pierced and bleeding, to pay the debt. Such mercy, such love and devotion can I forget. Let me not forget, O Savior, thou didst bleed and die for me. Think of me, thou ransomed one, think what I for thee have done with my blood that dripped like rain, sweat in agony of pain. With my body on the tree, I have ransomed even thee. Come, saints, and drop a tear or two for him who groaned beneath your load. He shed a thousand drops for you a thousand drops of precious blood. In a recent sacrament meeting, I followed along as the speaker read a familiar passage of Scripture, D&C 18 and 10. You know it. Remember the worth of souls is great in the sight of God. I cannot recall where the speaker then went with his remarks. Wherever it was, I did not follow, because my mind seized hold on an idea in the next verse that I had never seen before. To prove the great worth of our souls, the Lord tells us, for behold, the Lord your Redeemer suffered death in the flesh. Wherefore, he suffered the pain of all men that all men might repent and come unto him. His suffering proves his love, but it does more. It is the means he uses to get us to repent and come unto him. When we come to have some sense of what Christ has done for us, and in particular what he has suffered for us, our natural reaction as children of God is to want to show our gratitude and love by giving our lives to him, by obeying him. This verse is, in my opinion, the most succinct and profound description from the Lord himself of how to get the gospel down into the hearts of you and me and those we serve we should not use appeals to pride or even to a rational calculation of what is in one's best interest, heaven or hell. The best way, the only way to persuade people to repent and come into Christ is to get them, to get us, 
to think about what he has done for us and especially what he has suffered for us. That is how Christ does it. This is an insight from the restoration that we can and must use in our homes, our meetings, and all of our teachings. Several years ago, I heard Elder Gerald Lund of the 70 describe a magazine article about a school that taught people how to rock climb. The article discusses the concept of belaying, the fail-safe system that protects climbers. One climber gets into a safe position, fastens the rope securely in a fixed position, then calls to his companion, you're on belay, meaning I've got you. The director of the school, a Mr. Zenkush, described his experience with belaying. Now, quoting from the article, Belaying has brought Zenkush his best and worst moments in climbing. Zenkush once fell from a high precipice, yanking out three mechanical supports and pulling his belayer off a ledge. He was stopped upside down, 10 feet from the ground, when his spread-eagled belayer arrested the fall with the strength of his outstretched arms. Don saved my life, says Zenkush. How do you respond to a guy like that? Give him a used climbing rope for Christmas? No. You remember him. You just always remember him. The Lord's current prophet, Gordon B. Hinckley, told us recently, no member of this church must ever forget the terrible price paid by our Redeemer, who gave his life that all men might live. The agony of Gethsemane, the bitter mockery of his trial, the vicious crown of thorns tearing at his flesh, the blood cry of the mob before Pilate, the lonely burden of his heavy walk along the way to Calvary, the terrifying pain as his great nails pierced his hands and feet. We cannot forget that. We must never forget it. For here, our Savior, our Redeemer, the Son of God, gave himself a vicarious sacrifice for each of us. To those words of a prophet of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, I add my witness. This is the very root of Christian doctrine. May we always remember him and the price he paid to win our souls is my prayer in the name of our Savior and Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is Centering Our Lives on Christ. We've just heard from Thomas B. Griffith. After the break, we'll return with Stephen E. Robinson for Believing Christ, a Practical Approach to the Atonement. This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is Centering Our Lives on Christ. Next is Stephen E. Robinson, BYU Professor of Ancient Scripture at the time of this address, titled Believing Christ, A Practical Approach to the Atonement. I'm reminded of an incident that uh, occurred with my young son, Michael. And this morning I'd like to share with you incidents from my own life uh, that illustrated to my wife and I how the atonement works in a practical, everyday setting. The first is uh, the story of my little boy who uh, did something. He was six or seven years old, and I, he's my only son, 
and I'm hard on him. I want him to be better than his dad was, even as a boy, and so I lean on him. I expect a great deal, and he'd done something I thought was incredibly vile, and I let him know how terrible it was, and uh, I leaned on him really hard, and then sent him to his room with instructions, and don't you dare come out until I come and get you. And then I forgot. It was some hours later, as I was watching television, that I heard the door open to his room and heard the tentative footsteps coming down the hall. And I said, oh my gosh, I jumped up and ran to my end of the hall to see him standing with swollen eyes and tears on his cheeks at the other end. And he looked up at me. He wasn't quite sure he should have come out, but he looked up at me and he said, Dad, can't we ever be friends again? Well, I melted. I ran to him and hugged him. He's my boy. I love him. Like Michael, we all do things that disappoint our father, that separate us from his presence and from his spirit. There are times when we get sent to our room spiritually. There are sins that maim. There are sins that wound our spirits. Some of you know what it's like to do something that makes you feel as if you just drank raw sewage that you can wash, but you can never get clean. When that happens, sometimes we ask the Lord as we lift up our eyes, Oh, Father, can't we ever be friends again? The answer that is found in all the scriptures is a resounding yes, through the atonement of Christ. I particularly like the way that it is put in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. Come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. I like to paraphrase that for my students. What the Lord is saying is, I don't care what you did. It doesn't matter what you did. I can erase it. I can make you pure and worthy and innocent and celestial. Brothers and sisters, to have faith in Jesus Christ is not merely to believe that he is who he says he is, to believe in Christ. Sometimes to have faith in Christ is also to believe Christ. Both as a bishop and as a teacher in the church, I have learned that there are many who believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is the Savior of the world, but that he cannot save them. They believe in his identity, but not in his power to cleanse and to purify and to save. To have faith in his identity is only half. To have faith in his ability, in his power to cleanse and to save, that is the other half. We must not only believe in Christ, we must believe Christ when he says, I can cleanse you and make you celestial. When I was a bishop, I used to hear variations on a theme. Uh, sometimes it was, well, bishop, I've punched my ticket wrong. I, I just made mistakes that have got me off on the wrong track, and you can't get there from here. I've heard uh, those who say, well, bishop, I've sinned too horribly. See, I can't have the full blessings of the gospel because I did this or I did that. And I, I'll come to church, and I'll be active, and I'm hoping for, for a pretty good deal, but I, I, I couldn't have the full blessings of exaltation in the celestial kingdom after what I did. There are those members who say, 
Oh, Bishop, I'm just an average saint. I'm weak and imperfect, and and I don't have all the talents that sister so-and-so does or brother so-and-so does. I'll never be in a bishopric or I'll never be the Relief Society president. I'm just, I'm just average. I hope for a place a little further down. My favorite is a fellow who said to me once, Well, Bishop, I'm just not celestial material. And I'd had enough. I said back to him, Why don't you admit your problem? You're not celestial material? Welcome to the club. None of us are. None of us qualify on the terms of perfection that is required for the presence of God by ourselves. Why don't you just admit, John, that you do not have faith in the ability of Christ to do what he says he can do? He got angry. He had always believed in Christ. And he said, I have a testimony of Jesus. I believe in Christ. And I said, yes, you believe in Christ. You simply do not believe Christ. Because he says, though you are not celestial material, he can make you celestial. Sometimes the weight of the demand for perfection drives us to despair. Sometimes we fail to believe that most choice portion of the gospel which says that he can change us and bring us into his kingdom. Let me share an experience that happened some ten years ago. My wife and I were living in Pennsylvania. Things were going pretty well. I'd been uh, promoted. It was a good year for us. It was a kind of a trying year for Janet. That year she had our fourth child, graduated from college, passed the CPA exam, and was made Relief Society president. We had temple recommends. We had family home evening. I was in the bishopric. I thought we were headed for LDS yuppiehood. And then one night, the lights went out. Something happened in my wife that I can only describe as dying spiritually. She wouldn't talk about it. She wouldn't tell me what was wrong. That was the worst part. For a couple of weeks, she did not wish to participate in spiritual things. She asked to be released from her callings. And she would not open up and tell me what was wrong. Finally, after about two weeks, one night, I made her mad, and it came out. She said, all right, you want to know what's wrong? I'll tell you what's wrong. I can't do it anymore. I can't lift it. I can't get up at 5.30 in the morning and bake bread and sew clothes and help my kids with their homework and do my own homework and do my Relief Society stuff and get my genealogy done and write the congressman and go to the PTA meetings and write the missionaries. And she just started laying one brick after another that had been laid on her, explaining what she could not do. She said, I don't have the talent that Sister Morrill has. I can't do what Sister Childs does. I try not to yell at the kids. But I lose control, and I do. I'm just not perfect, and I'm not ever going to be perfect. I'm not going to make it to the celestial kingdom. And I've admitted that to myself. 
You and the kids can go. <laughs> but I can't lift it. I'm not Molly Mormon, and I'm not ever going to be perfect. So I've given up. Why break my back? We started to talk, and it was a long night. I asked her, Janet, do you have a testimony? She said, of course I do. That's what's so terrible. I know it's true. I just can't do it. I said, have you kept the covenants you made when you were baptized? She said, I've tried and I've tried, but I cannot keep all the commandments all the time. And then I rejoiced because I knew what was wrong. And I could see the light at the end of the tunnel, and it wasn't any of those horrible things I thought it might be. Who would have thought, after eight years of marriage, and all the lessons we'd given and heard, and all that we had read in the church, and all that we had done in the church, who would have thought that Janet did not know the gospel of Jesus Christ? You see, she was trying to save herself. She knew why Jesus is a coach, and a cheerleader, an advisor, a teacher. She knew why he's an example the head of the church, the elder brother, or even God. She knew all of that. But she did not understand why he is called the Savior. Janet was trying to save herself with Jesus as an advisor. And brothers and sisters, we cannot do it. No one can. No one is perfect, not even the brethren. Let me have you turn to the Book of Mormon, the Book of Ether, Chapter 3, verse 2. This is one of the greatest prophets who ever lived, the brother of Jared. His faith is so great that he is about to pierce the veil and see the spiritual body of Christ. As he begins the prayer, he says in verse 2, Now behold, O Lord, and do not be angry with thy servant because of his weakness before thee. One of the greatest prophets who ever lived, and he starts his prayer with an apology as an imperfect being for approaching a perfect God. For we know that thou art holy and dwellest in the heavens, and that we are unworthy before thee. Because of the fall, our natures have become evil continually. That means it's our heritage from Adam that while we are in mortality, we will struggle with evil, and sometimes we will lose. Nevertheless, O Lord, thou hast given us a commandment that we must call upon thee, that from thee we may receive, and this is the key, according to our desires. Of course we're imperfect. Of course we fail of the celestial level. That's why we need a Savior. And we are commanded to approach God and to call upon him, that from him we may receive according to our desires. In the New Testament, the Savior says, Blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. We misinterpret that frequently. We think that means blessed are the righteous. It does not. When are you hungry? When are you thirsty? When you don't have the object of your desire. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after the righteousness that God has, after the righteousness of the celestial kingdom. Because as that is the desire of their heart, they can achieve it. They will be filled. 
Perfection comes through the atonement of Christ. We become one with him, with a perfect being. And as we become one, there is a merger. Some of my students are in business, and they understand it better if I talk in business terms. You take a small, bankrupt firm that's about ready to go under, and you merge it with a corporate giant. What happens? The assets and the liabilities flow together. And the new entity that is created is solvent. It's like when Janet and I got married. I was overdrawn. Janet had money in the bank. <laughs> By virtue of making that commitment, of entering into that covenant relationship of marriage with my wife, we became a joint account. And I was no longer me and she was no longer her. We were now us. And my liabilities and her assets flowed into each other, and for the first time in months, I was in the black. <laughs> Spiritually, this is what happens when we enter into the covenant relationship with our Savior. We have liabilities. He has assets. He proposes to us a covenant relationship. I use the word propose on purpose because it is a marriage of a spiritual sort that is being proposed. That is why he is called the bridegroom. This covenant relationship is so intimate that it can be described as a marriage. And we become one with him. And now as partners, we work together for my salvation and my exaltation. And my liabilities and his assets flow into each other. And I do what I can all that I can do, and he does what I cannot, and the two of us are perfect. This is why the Savior says in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 and following, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. What heavier load is there than the demand for perfection, that you must do it all, that you must make yourself perfect in this life? before you have hope in the next. What heavier burden is there than that? That's the yoke of the law. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Turn, if you will, to Second Nephi, chapter 4, verse 17. You know the prophet Nephi, one of the great prophets. Yet he had a sense of his need for the Savior, of his reliance upon the Savior. He says in verse 17, O wretched man that I am, yea, my heart sorroweth because of my flesh, my soul grieveth because of mine iniquities. I am encompassed about because of the temptations and the sins which do so easily beset me. And when I desire to rejoice, my heart groaneth because of my sins. Does Nephi have an appreciation for his mortal condition, for his need of a Savior to be saved from his sins? Oh, yes. And the key is what comes next. Nevertheless, I know in whom I have trusted. All right, I'm imperfect. My sins bother me. 
I am not celestial yet, but I know in whom I have trusted. When our twin daughters were small, we decided to take them to the public pool and teach them how to swim. I remember starting with Rebecca. I went down into the water. The water was only about three feet deep, and uh, three and a half feet deep, I think. And as I went down in the water with Rebecca, I thought, I'm going to teach her how to swim. As we went down into the water, in her mind was the thought, my dad is going to drown me. I'm going to die. See, the water, the water was three and a half feet deep, but Becky was only three feet deep. And as we went down into the water, she was so petrified that she began to scream and cry and kick and scratch and uh, was unteachable. Finally, I just had to grab her, and I threw my arms around her, and I just held her, and I said, Becky, I've got you. I'm your dad. I love you. I'm not going to let anything bad happen to you. Now relax. And bless her heart, she trusted me, and she relaxed. And I put my arms under her and said, Okay, now kick your legs. And we began to learn how to swim. Spiritually, there are some of us who are so petrified at that question. Am I celestial? Am I going to make it? Was I good enough today? We're so terrified of whether we're going to live or die, whether we've made it to the kingdom or not, that we cannot make progress. It's at those times when the Savior grabs us and throws his arms around us and says, Hey, I've got you. I love you. I'm not going to let you die. Now relax and trust me. And if we can relax and trust him and believe him as well as believe in him, then together we can begin to learn to live the gospel. And he puts his arms under us and he says, Okay, now pay tithing. Very good. Now pay a full tithing. And we begin to make progress. Turn, if you will, to Alma chapter 34, verse 14 and following. And behold, this is the whole meaning of the law, every whit pointing to that great and last sacrifice, and that great and last sacrifice will be the Son of God, yea, infinite and eternal. And thus he shall bring salvation to all those who shall believe on his name, this being the intent of this last sacrifice, to bring about the bowels of mercy, which overpowereth justice, and bringeth about means unto men that they may have faith unto repentance." And thus, mercy can satisfy the demands of justice and encircles them in the arms of safety. My favorite phrase from the Book of Mormon. Brothers and sisters, do Mormons believe in being saved? If I ask my classes that question with just the right twang in my voice, do we believe in being saved? I can generally get about a third of my students to shake their head and say, Oh, no, oh no that's, that's those other guys that believe in that. What a tragedy. Brothers and sisters, we believe in being saved. That's why Jesus is called the Savior. What good is it to have a Savior if no one is saved? It's like having a lifeguard that won't get out of the chair. There goes another one down. <laughs> Try the backstroke. <laughs> Didn't make it. 
we have a Savior who can save us from ourselves, from our lack, from our imperfections, from the carnal individual within. Turn, if you will, to the Doctrine and Covenants, section 76, verses 68 and 69. In Joseph's vision of the celestial kingdom, he describes those who are there in these terms. These are they whose names are written in heaven where God and Christ are the judge of all. These are they who are just men made perfect through Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. Just men and women, good men and women, those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, made perfect through Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. As my wife and I talked about her feeling of inadequacy and her feeling that she couldn't do it and that she couldn't make it, I had a hard time reaching her until finally I hit upon something that had happened in our family just a couple of months earlier. It is now called the parable of the bicycle. When uh, I was coming home from school one day, I was sitting in the chair and reading the, the newspaper, and my daughter Sarah, then seven years old, came in and said, Dad, can I have a bike? I'm the only kid on the block who doesn't have a bike. And I didn't have enough money to buy her a bike, so I stalled her. I said, sure, Sarah. She said, how, when? So I said, you save all your pennies, and pretty soon you'll have enough for a bike. She went away. A couple of weeks later, as I was sitting in the same chair, I was aware of uh, Sarah doing something for her mother and getting paid. She went in the other room. I heard clink, clink. I said, Sarah, what are you doing? And she came out. And she had a little jar all cleaned up with a slit cut in the lid and a bunch of pennies in the bottom. She looked at me and she said, you promised me that if I saved all my pennies, pretty soon I'd have enough for a bike. And Daddy, I've saved every single one. She's my daughter. I love her. My heart melted. She was doing everything in her power. I hadn't actually lied to her. If she'd save all of her pennies, eventually she'd have enough for a bike. <laughs> By then she'd want a car. <laughs> but her needs weren't being met. Because I love her, I said, well, let's go downtown and look at bikes. So we did. We went to every store in Williamsport, Pennsylvania, and finally we found it, the perfect bicycle, the one she knew in the pre-existence. <laughs> and she got up on that bike, and she was just thrilled, and she saw then the price tag, and she reached down, and she turned it over, and she saw how much it cost, and her face fell. She started to cry, and she said, Oh, Dad, I'll never have enough for a bicycle. So I proposed a new deal to her. I said, Sarah, how much do you have? She said, 61 cents. <laughs> I'll tell you what. You give me everything you've got, the whole 61 cents and a hug and a kiss, and that bike is yours. She's never been stupid. <laughs> she gave me a hug and a kiss. She gave me 61 cents, and then I had to drive home very slowly because she wouldn't get off the bike. She rode home 
on the sidewalk, and as I drove along slowly beside her, it occurred to me that that was a parable for the atonement of Christ. We all want something desperately. It isn't a bicycle. We want the celestial kingdom. We want to be with our Father in heaven. And no matter how hard we try, we come up short. And at some point, we realize, I can't do this. And that's the point that my wife had reached. But it's at that point when the sweetness of the gospel covenant comes to our taste. And the Savior proposes, I'll tell you what. All right, you're not perfect. How much do you have? What can you do? Where are you now? Give me all there is, and I'll pay the rest. Give me a hug and a kiss. Enter into a personal relationship with me, and I will do what remains undone. The good news and the bad news is this. The bad news is that he still requires our best efforts. We must try. We must work. We must do all that we can. But the good news is that having done that, it is enough for now. Together we'll make progress in the eternities, and eventually we will become perfect. But in the meantime, only as a partnership and in a covenant relationship with Him, by tapping His perfection, can we hope to qualify? When I explained to Janet how it worked, finally, and it broke through and she understood, she bloomed. I remember her saying in her tears, I have always believed he is the Son of God. I have always believed that he suffered and died for me. But now I know that he can save me from myself, from my sins, from my weakness, inadequacy, lack of talent. Oh, brothers and sisters, how many of us forget the words of Second Nephi? Turn, if you will, to chapter 2. In verse 8, we are told, There is no flesh that can dwell in the presence of God, save it be through the merits and mercy and grace of of the Holy Messiah. There is no other way. Many of us are trying to save ourselves and holding the atonement of Christ at arm's distance and saying, when I've done it, when I've perfected myself, when I've made myself more worthy, then I'll be worthy of the atonement. Then I will allow him in. And we cannot do it. That's like saying, when I am well, I will take the medicine. I will be worthy of it then. And that's not how it was designed to work. There is a hymn, it is one of my favorites, which says, Dearly, dearly has he loved, and we must love him too, and trust in his redeeming blood, and try his works to do. I think one of the reasons why I love that hymn so much is because it has both sides of that covenant relationship. We must try his works to do. With all that is in us, we must do all that we can. But having done all, 
then we must trust in his redeeming blood and in his ability to do for us what we cannot yet do. Brother McConkie used to call this being in the gospel harness. He said that when we are in the gospel harness, when we are pulling for the kingdom with our eyes on that goal, although we are not yet there, we can have confidence that just as that is our goal in life, so it will be our goal in eternity. And through the atonement of Christ, we can have hope of achieving it and an expectation of receiving it. I bear testimony to you that this is true. I have learned this lesson in my life. Our family has learned this lesson in our collective life. I bear testimony that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he is the Savior of the world, and that he is our individual Savior. If we will only enter into that glorious covenant relationship with him, and give him all that we have, whether it be 61 cents or a dollar and a half or two cents. Hold nothing back. Give it all and have faith and trust in his ability to do for us what we cannot yet accomplish, to make up what we yet lack of perfection. I bear testimony of him. I love him. I love his gospel dearly. And I say these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was Centering Our Lives on Christ with thoughts from Thomas B. Griffith and Stephen E. Robinson. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org slash findingcenter. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.